you get Republicans and Democrats in the same room, like a lot of them want to work together on things. But bipartisanship has kind of become a four letter word. Welcome back to the Facts About PACs podcast. I'm your host, Michaela Isler, NABPAC's executive director, and I'm joined, as always, by Adam Belmar. Memorial Day is behind us, Michaela. It is full speed ahead towards summer. Well, everyone that has uh, known me for a long time knows when we get to this point in the year, I always say it's going to be Christmas before we know it. So I don't mean to be a downer, but it is going to be full steam ahead. And my daughter absolutely got that memo, Adam. But for many on Capitol Hill, it was a working holiday, wasn't it? It sure was. And thank goodness they did that work. The measure to suspend the federal debt limit as of this taping has passed the House of Representatives and is moving with deliberate speed to the United States Senate and on to the president's desk before the 5th of June. No default. No default. I guess that means the wheels of Congress might start rolling again, right, Adam? Well, with this logjam removed, I think anything is possible. And when anything is possible, it's, as we always say, best to be prepared for just about everything. Then we've got exactly the right guest on the right topic at the right time, Michaela. Coming up in just a minute on the number one pack podcast in America, an exclusive policy and politics update with Sean Joyce, founder and CEO of the bipartisan public affairs firm Atlas Crossing. The Facts About PACs podcast is produced especially for the members of the National Association of Business Political Action Committees. In every episode, we recap this week's NABPAC activities, share actionable intelligence and best practices, all while connecting the PAC community. And today's episode is brought to you by Public Affairs Support Services. PASS has been keeping PACs on track for 38 years. From preparing and filing your FEC and state PAC reports to managing your PAC match program and hosting your PAC website, the employee owners at PASS make your PAC programs and compliance their business. So pleased to have PASS as our sponsor again this week. And Adam, PASS has a client conference, and I've been lucky enough to be an invited guest to speak on one of their panels. So I'm excited to be with all of the PASS clients and share more about all the things we're doing over here at NABPAC. Just really appreciate PASS's not only support for the podcast, but for being a longtime member of NABPAC. Adam, before we jump in with Sean Joyce, just a few quick words on our upcoming NABPAC activities. We've talked a lot about our new Let's Talk series. Um, I'm excited about our next one. We've had a lot of interest on June 6th. We'll be bringing in someone who has created a new tracking data tool through Microsoft Power BI that I think our members are going to be really interested in hearing about. doesn't take away from the work that they're doing with their current vendors, but it's kind of a quick dashboard to gather all the data that I know our PAC members are constantly being asked for. So looking forward to that discussion as we've talked about, just a quick 30-minute deep dive for those that are interested in learning more. And as we've been talking about and teasing out, we have our summer soiree on June 15th with Pack Pals up on our rooftop. I'm 100% going to be there with bells on. Soiree on the rooftop with Pack folks. I think our guest today, Sean Choice, might even try and make his way over there. But it's exciting. And I do want to just say that being able to profile some of these new tools that are coming on the market and understand how they can be integrated with existing vendors and platforms is 
so critical. I'm finding that even in the production of this podcast, Michaela, there are tools on the market today that didn't exist a year ago. And being afraid to learn how to use them is a mistake because they're built to be used and they're rather intuitive. And I think there's a lot to learn with this Let's Talk coming up next week. Absolutely. And then really rounding out the month, Adam, our DEI task force will be hosting a great conversation, kind of a fireside chat with Abigail Blunt at the end of the month and really just showcasing her journey. You know, longtime government affairs professional has moved more into working with a number of different corporate boards. And so a great discussion anticipated with her as we round out our NAP activities for the month of June. Joining us now to talk policy and politics in the second half of the first session of the 118th Congress is Sean Joyce, founder and CEO of Atlas Crossing. Welcome to the Facts About PACs podcast, Sean. Michaela, Adam, great to be with you all. You had me at soiree. (laughs) Well, Sean, for the benefit of everyone who is still sort of catching up, catching their breath on everything that happened last night and, and over the last couple of days on the debt limit standoff, would love to just hear from you kind of a high level overview of what just happened and what it means in the near term for the federal budget process for fiscal year 24 and beyond? Yeah, it's it's a great question. Uh, I think you're right. People are catching their breath, wiping sweat from their brow. Um, you know, this is always an interesting exercise as the debt ceiling negotiations of the past decade plus have been. We try and counsel clients to separate the signal from the noise and so I, I wouldn't necessarily take what, what cable news and people on Twitter have been selling over the past several weeks and months on this, but recognizing, you know, they their ads are driven by clicks and eyeballs. And so uh, chaos is, is obviously uh, helps drive the narrative for them. But I think, you know, it's important to kind of take just a, a quick look back. And this goes back, Michaela, to a conversation we had with your members in January, shortly after the speaker's election. Uh, when when you and I were talking about this, we said the biggest test for the newly minted Republican majority in the House of Representatives and Kevin McCarthy particularly was going to be the debt ceiling. Um, over the past decade, that has been the thorniest issue for Republicans since the rise of the Tea Party. And this goes back to, you know, Boehner and Speaker Ryan. And so the speaker certainly had his uh, tough hand put before him, notwithstanding having an even smaller margin. Uh, I think, you know, very few in Washington, certainly not the media, gave the speaker a shot of surviving his first few months as speaker. I think people were writing obituaries after the speaker's race, uh, let alone getting anything of consequence across the finish line where he would actually come across as the victor. Um, and so, you know, interesting dynamic is is not just the was that the media's kind of position in how they frame this, but it also was the Biden administration's position and in large part the the Democrats. Uh, Schumer and Biden basically based their assumption off the fact that McCarthy couldn't get anything out of the Republican conference because they used the historical references of, you know, the majority of Republicans who are in the House today have not voted to raise the debt ceiling. And so um, that was where their operating stance had been for the first few months. The president said he's not going to negotiate with Kevin McCarthy on the debt ceiling. And I think the conventional wisdom was Mitch McConnell was going to come in and save the day, cut a deal with a few moderates. They were going to probably enable some kind of gang. Of, of a handful of GOP moderates, and they would team up with the Democrats and do what we've seen happen in Washington before. And so most people, I think, were kind of looking at that as the uh, the fail safe. But really, this the, the dynamics changed when the speaker was able to pass the Limit Save Grow Act. Um, you know, over 100 Republicans who had never voted for a debt ceiling before 
now we're on record voting for it. He got it out. He got a lot of the Freedom Caucus, the people who were voting against him in the speaker's race. Um, and that really changed the dynamic. It changed the negotiations. And, you know, despite it taking a couple more weeks for the administration to kind of go through their many stages of grief, they finally came to the table and had to have a bilateral agreement where it was a Biden McCarthy negotiation. Um, you know, when you, when you have these large scale agreements, you know, oftentimes they're the four corners, right? You've got the four corners of leadership, but the larger the agreements and the negotiations get, the, the thornier they are. Um, bilateral agreements obviously behoove both parties to really negotiate in good faith. Um, and, and so when they finally did come together over the past few weeks, uh, the administration basically came to the, the realization that they had painted themselves in a corner. And, you know, the, the 14th Amendment fantasy was no longer something that they could really do, uh, despite them talking to it and about it up until the minute they cut the deal. Um, and so by having that leverage kind of taken off the table, it, it gave the House Republicans a position where they could uh, ultimately get a win on this and have real cuts, which is something that the Democrats said could not happen. And so, uh, as you saw last night, you know, I think nobody was shocked to see a, a, a big swath of Freedom Caucus and other conservative members vote against the debt ceiling, but two thirds of the Republican conference voted. Ultimately, 300 people voted for a debt ceiling. I mean, that, 300 votes, is, you put those on suspension calendars. So for all of this uh, hysteria and pent up you know, the, the sky is falling conversation. It actually went through pretty quickly. Of course, there's some interesting bumps in the road and the rule at the end, you know, had to get some additional Democratic votes on it. But by and large, it was pretty drama free getting it across the finish line. To your point, Michaela, this move to the Senate where it's on a glide path. If you have 300 votes in the House, yes, McConnell is going to give a lot of his far right the opportunity to offer amendments. But I think he's put down the edict that he wants those offered and withdrawn and debated and Let's move on. And so where that goes from here, you know, I think when one side takes a loss, you know, they're scrambling for the next battle. Right. And I think Republicans, by and large, I think even the press today is probably the most favorable it's been to the speaker. Um, but the Democrats are going to be looking for what that next battle is. And I'm, and the, the far right of the Republican conference is going to be looking for what that next battle is. And to your broader question, what's next? Appropriations. Um, and so Things start kicking off next week. You've got all the uh, the subcommittees starting to mark up their bills. Uh, they'll move to uh, full committee bills um, the the weeks afterwards. And so this is kind of a um, a sprint to August recess where we're going to see a flurry of activity in the appropriation space. You've got some newly rejiggered top line numbers in the debt ceiling. Um, some folks who are fiscal hawks, and you've also got some people in the armed services and national security space that weren't too thrilled with how the um, the Pentagon budget numbers ended up. And so I think we could hear conversations about, you know, defense supplemental, um, other things to help plus up defense funding, which could really change the dynamic of what these appropriations bills look like over the next couple of weeks. But that's, in my mind, where the next battle is. So I think the speaker was able to to fight off, you know, uh, a conservative challenge. You know, there's obviously going to be a lot of talk in the press about a motion to vacate, but um, I think he shored up his support and he shored up his ability to, to not only um, drive an agenda, but tackle one of the thorniest issues that has been perennially difficult for any Republican speaker to navigate across the finish line, to do so with the majority of majority Republicans, and not only the majority of majority, but the two-thirds majority. And so um, that leaves us looking at appropriations, uh, a couple other items on the horizon, you know, NDAA is coming up. Uh, they're a little bit behind on their calendar at the committee, but that should start moving here fairly soon. I think we'll see a bill getting marked up by the 4th of July. And then uh, FAA reauthorization at the TNI Committee in Commerce. And then this fall, the big 
ticket item will be the uh, the farm bill. And so I think a couple of those items um, should grab a lot of your members' attention. So Sean, I think the big question for a lot of people in our audience right now is the log jam's out of the way. You're talking about appropriations going through what I know the speaker has said he wants, which is more of a regular order process. But for many folks, there are pieces of legislation out there that are meaningful for their industry and for their business. Do you see a possibility that in this legislative calendar that there might be room for other things to move this year? Yeah, Adam, I appreciate the question. So Going back to my comment about separating signal from noise, you know, oftentimes what is bipartisan doesn't necessarily percolate to the top of the headlines, right? Uh, case in point, just last week, you know, we worked really hard uh, for a number of our clients on uh, this big supply chain bill that came out of the Transportation and Infrastructure Committee. Very few headlines were written about that because the, the talk of the town was debt ceiling related, but that passed out of the committee on a bipartisan vote. It was a nine-hour markup, and I know that because I was there at 10 a.m., and I was there till the end of the markup when the gavel came down. Um, but that's something that has real everyday impacts, not just for the member companies we're talking about, but for everyday Americans. You know, supply chain issues, you know, I, I kind of joke because I started my career in the Transportation Infrastructure Committee. People who are in like the logistics and supply chain space, those are issues that percolate to the top for them every day. But pre-COVID, those were not the sexiest issues in town. And so- once people started running out of toilet paper, you know, all of a sudden supply chain issues matter to folks. And so I think that's something that has meaningful impact. Um, I think there's an opportunity to move that legislation across the floor. I know they are having conversations in the Senate. Um, and so, you know, to, to kind of put a, a bow on it, I think there is runway to do things, but that runway gets uh, increasingly shorter as the 2024 politics increasingly get louder. And going back to my comments about how people are looking for eyeballs and views. Everyone's going to want to put cable news. Want to put DeSantis and Trump on there before they talk about what the T and I committee did on supply chain. Yeah, Sean, uh, that that's an excellent insight and overview. I think, uh, as you know, a, a topic of you know interest for our members and for us here at NAPAC is always campaign finance, and it seems to be you know always a topic in the mix on Capitol Hill. Um, what, if anything, is brewing in the 118th on this front that you think might move forward? So campaign finance is, is always an interesting topic. Uh, I think we have to take it, view it through a different lens, which is House Republicans are in charge now. And so they are not viewing it through the position of the previous Congress's lens, which was everything was viewed through January 6th. Uh, the House Admin Committee is taking a very uh, methodical approach holding hearings. They've held a number over the past couple of months on election reform. We know that they are working on reintroduction of the ACE Act, which we've talked about with your members. That was Rodney Davis's bill from last Congress. Uh, I anticipate there will be continued hearings throughout the summer on this in the House. Uh, and I think they're going to look to move a bill on election reform and potentially including provisions on campaign finance. And so, you know, from our perspective, it's one of those if you're not at the table, you're what's for dinner. I think this is a really good opportunity for us to go in and educate these people because, you know, there's a lot of new staff, there's a lot of new members, and and some of these issues are very niche. And, and I think we've had positive reception with the folks that we've talked to. Um, but me, really getting in and telling our story early and often is what's going to help us. I appreciate that feedback, and I think our members will be pleased to hear that there is potential for movement. You know, at least some point in the near future. Even along those same lines, you know, we've, we've, gosh, we've, we're in such a hyper partisan environment. And I think even more so after what we've seen over the last couple of days with the debt ceiling vote, 
just from your perspective, your background, you've been a chief of staff on the Hill, you know, you now work with a diverse set of clients. What is your advice on how we cut through this hyper-partisanship environment to get the traction on so many other priority issues going forward? I do think that when you look at an advocacy campaign, you really have to separate it from the PR campaign, right? And so the hyper-partisanship, it's partially byproduct of what the media portrays. Um, but, you know, when you talk with members, Republicans and Democrats alike on issues, you know, you get Republicans and Democrats in the same room, like a lot of them want to work together on things. But bipartisanship has kind of become a four letter word, right? You know, if, if you do too many deals with someone across the aisle, you risk getting primaried. And that goes for both sides of it. And so, there's a lot of disincentives for people to want to work together. And so you really got to be able to go in and position yourself and, and your issues in a fashion where both sides feel like they can walk away, that they win something. And so I think the debt ceiling, yes, there was a lot of partisan jockeying, but ultimately I think it was a really good test to demonstrate a 300 plus margin um, was a bipartisan vote. And so you know, I, I like watching the press kind of eat their words on this a little bit today because it's something that we've been kind of cautioning folks like, hey, don't buy into the hype. Um, but, but ultimately, you know, there's, there's benefits to building consensus on legislative issues. And from an advocacy standpoint, you know, we kind of counsel this to our clients. It's the non-sexy side of what we do on the GR world. It is going in early. It is educating. It is presenting yourself as a resource. And that's really where you can be the most effective when it comes to, to GR work, um, is where you are considered somebody who is a subject matter expert on something. And you've got members and Hill staff who are saying, hey, we know you came in and talked to us a couple weeks ago about X. You presented yourself well. You presented yourself honestly. And I really want to underscore honestly because there are a lot of people in this industry who I think can kind of shade and have different shades of truth. Um, but you know, let's ask you about why. What is your take on, on this other issue that might be uh, parallel? And so when you've got this position of, of you know, assumed or real authority, that's where I think you can have meaningful impact on advocacy. And, and to your, your broader question about bipartisanship, you know, there are going to be bipartisan bills. FAA reauthorization is going to be a bipartisan bill that comes out of the committee. What happens in the Senate? They're still a little bit behind. Uh, Mr. Cruz and Ms. Cantwell um, aren't necessarily lined up, I don't think yet. But Mr. Larson and Mr. Graves are, are working really closely together. And, and to be frank, they were working closely together last Congress when they started working on this bill. And so, um, uh, same thing with the farm bill. The farm bill has to be bipartisan or it is dead on arrival. And so uh, I think as we get closer to some of those later on this year, there are uh, real meaningful opportunities for folks to get bipartisan wins, which I think the American public wants to see. Sean, you, you've instilled me with a great deal of confidence hearing you speak that way because it just sort of reassures me and I hope our audience that a lot of what we are talking about is echoed here, that the hard work of finding compromise solutions oriented in a bipartisan way and the education mission is that we're doing something right. And I think our PAC managers can feel confident that if the same tactics that they're using, Sean, are the same recommendations that you have in the way that people can run their campaigns, that we're all doing something right, that we really are aligned. For people who support employee-funded and business trade association PACs, I think they recognize largely that they're a part of a moderating influence on our politics. And when we bring that to Washington and we find people quietly in rooms where you find yourself working together from both sides of the aisle, it leads me to ask this question. How are our PAC managers going to be able to help 
tell that story to the people who get involved and make that connection that you've made for us? What do you tell them to talk about with their people when they're trying to get this message across? Yeah, Adam, I, I love the question. You know, from my perspective, donor cultivation is paramount. Civic engagement and bringing more voices and more perspectives to the table is, I think, what helps set PACs apart. You know, there's small dollar donors who are contributing. And Michaela, I, I know you've used the stat in the past about the average contribution being around $30 per paycheck. Yeah, that's correct. And so I, I think, you know, just being engaged as part of the political process, be, having more voices at the table is what ultimately makes this work. When you've got a select few who are making decisions uh, and behind closed doors, you ultimately end up with a product that only those select few and the constituencies or stakeholders they represent are being championed. And so, you know, it's it's helpful for people to get to know the candidates both here in D.C., but also back in the district. People on the ground really have their ear to the ground and can kind of kick the tires and really find out who is authentic. What do these people stand for? What do you know, these candidates before they become to Washington uh, and are sworn in as members of Congress? And I think having that open line of communication both here at the state level is what really helps move the ball forward and ultimately align people with your businesses. Sean, I really appreciate that sentiment. I think our PAC managers oftentimes get the brunt of uh, sort of this this hyper partisanship and can feel it can feel a little daunting, you know, to stay in the game and keep our head down and keep moving forward. And just hearing that everything that we do, that they do really does matter and makes a difference. I think it, it just really resonates with our listeners. So Sean Joyce, founder and CEO, Atlas Crossing, thank you so much for not only being our guest on the Fact About PAC podcast, but for also being just a great team member with NAPAC. Michaela, I really appreciate the the sentiment and uh, and the opportunity to join both you and Adam today. It was a pleasure. Uh, let me know when the soiree is. You know, I'll never miss a good party. <laughs> well, thanks, Sean. And thanks to everyone downloading and sharing the Facts About Packs podcast. Subscribe and meet us right back here next week. <laughs>